Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering all horror movie franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. And this week, we are back, not with a franchise, but we are here to close out John Carpenter June with a standalone movie. And folks, we have a message for you, and you're not going to like it. Although if you're a first-time listener, I guess telling you within one minute you're not going to like it is probably a bad idea. You're like, oh, well, I cannot listen to this episode now. No, we are here to talk about the 1987 cult classic, I would call this, Prince of Darkness. And as always, I am not alone. I've got a couple folks in the co-host chair with us today. Joining us once again, back, been here for every episode for John Carpenter June the co-host of the Disenfranchised podcast, Mr. Stephen Foxworthy. Stephen, how are we? Doing well, Mike, but I got to tell you, faith is a hard thing to come by these days. It definitely is. Uh, but no, doing great. Happy to be here. Confirmed sexist Stephen Foxworthy. <laughs> no, God, no. No, absolutely not. Am not and not really would not be proud of it if I were. So, no. although I think oh. being proud of sexism probably comes with being a sexist. So maybe probably. those do go hand in hand. It might. It just might. Also with us today, the co-host of the Spectre Cinema Club, Mr. Devon Taylor. Devon, how are we doing? Hello, hello. I am doing fantastic. Uh, A second John Carpenter helping. Another first, well, actually the last one was a first time watching, but this one was a first time watching. Uh, uh, Cold classic, though. That's interesting because I feel like this is like, I never see anyone talk about this. So like, where's the cult at? That's what I'm I'm wondering. It's a much smaller cult than some of the others, (laughs) honestly. It's there are a lot of folks that really appreciate this movie. Um, you're right, though, when you talk about Carpenter, it does not come up like his classics like Halloween or The Thing or The Fog or Escape from New York. Um, I don't think it has that same like reverence of those movies. And I think we'll talk about why. But I think the people that get it like really get it and steven this was your pick like this was when we were debating Mm -hmm. what's the third movie to do like i suggested in the mouth of madness and i think on air you're like what about prince of darkness like that actually might work really well for the themes of like science and religion so why don't you kick things off with your first and give us your first impression of this movie like when you first watched it and what jumped out to you during that initial viewing I uh, first watched this one as with, I think, every movie that we've talked about this month in in quarantine in 2020, uh, when I just decided to watch all of John Carpenter's movies, because why not? I got nothing but time. And um, this one, this one has been consistently a slow burn for me. And I it's one like The Fog that I think I appreciate a little bit more every time I come back to it and every time I engage with it. Um, I was watching it with my partner earlier and I I mentioned to her, like, I get like, this is the third time I've watched this movie and I feel myself plugging into it just a little bit more every time I watch it. Like every time I pick it up, every time I turn it on, I just, I, I, I catch something else. I notice something more. I like, I get, I get further, a little further plugged in there. And I, I really like that about this movie. I think that is, uh, I love a movie that kind of grows each time you watch it. Like this started out, I think as a three for me, I got it sitting at a four right now. Like Mm -hmm. it just, again, it just kind of grows for me. And I, I can absolutely see myself bumping this up to a four and a half. 
Um, but one thing that's always really kind of flipped my switch as a, as a film watcher is the whole faith and science debate, faith and reason. Um, I'm, I'm someone who grew up in a fairly conservative Christian tradition. Um, and so as, as a result of that, I, I carry that perspective along with me. Um, but I'm also someone who is, is willing to learn and, and willing to notice that truth is going to win out at the end of every day. And I think there are some people who aren't really willing to go that distance, who, who turn off obvious truths because they don't mesh with the things that they believe. And I think that if Mm. we're going to believe in something, it needs to be something true. Um, and, and I think this movie approaches that in particular very well, which is one thing I absolutely love about this movie. Plus Devon mentioned on escape from New York that he hadn't seen this one yet. And I was like, I want to give Devon an excuse to watch this movie. So I would, that's, that's why I was stumping for, for Prince mm-hmm. of Darkness. This is, I would not call this one of my favorite Carpenters, but it is one that I just, again, I, I really enjoy just a little bit more every time I come back to it. Yeah. Excellent. I, I, I think I'm going to be interested to talk about, cause I don't see this as a movie that pits science and religion against one another. Like most mm-hmm. movies do. I no. think that the two, one is meant to bolster the other here. I think you're using science to bolster religion in this case. And I think, I think is if you're doing it right, that's how you should be doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Devon, how about yourself? This was an initial viewing for you. So what were your, what were your first thoughts watching the Prince of Darkness? Yeah. First time around. And this was definitely a movie that like in premise should be for me that I should love. Like I also am a, a similar to Steven. I'm interested in, you know, science versus uh, faith, uh, you know, that kind of uh, thing. And like you said, it's not exactly science versus uh, faith that, that I like that this is like kind of taking the next step of like, okay, let's like use this, like let's use science to like kind of prove uh, the faith in in a way because like I feel like that is like kind of the the obvious like kind of way to settle that debate is just like well just show some proof and there we go so like it kind of makes sense. Um, unfortunately, uh, this uh, kind of did not do anything for me. Like I kind of felt it, it didn't do anything bad, but it also like didn't really do anything good. Like it, like there's some there's uh, some moments that I I mean I definitely love the score. Uh, John Carpenter's, uh, you know, style of score works so well for, for, uh, to mesh with like religious, uh, aesthetic, uh, imagery as well as like, uh, the, the sounds as well. So like, I mean, great score as usual, uh, the, the green water floating upside down, some cool effects and things like that. But, uh, as far as just like, uh, this movie kind of didn't have any energy, um, the, the tone just wasn't quite there. It's like, it, it either needs to be more fun and weird or if you're gonna be like serious like go like real serious like annihilation and like really get some like get real sciency with it and like get like real into the nitty-gritty or get you know just get kind of weird and silly and this movie kind of sits in a weird in between of that um i mean the performances are decent but you don't know any of the characters um you know and like again there's nothing like egregiously wrong with the movie but it just didn't move me either. Like I didn't like really feel anything, especially for someone that is interested in, um, you know, exploring the reasons why people have faith, but then also 
the to again like be like hey like let's take this and like let's do it together not like kind of button heads with it um so yeah i don't know the so a really great premise that i was interested in that just uh, didn't quite deliver unfortunately yeah yeah i am like somewhere in between the two of you when it comes to this movie um i would say this is like middle of the road carpenter for me but i also like in preparation for this show like i think i've watched it at least three times in the past week and grew i think as i could wrap my head around it a little more with each subsequent viewing i grew to appreciate this one a little more it's a very small picture with very big ideas one of the things we talked about when we talked about escape from new york uh, in particular and also with the fog is carpenter is at his best when the elevator pitch is short and sweet, when you can kind of sum up what's going on in one or two lines, that's when Carpenter is at his best. And what I found with this movie is it's very hard to synopsize this movie in one or two sentences, that it very quickly becomes unwieldy. And that's where it kind of loses the plot a little bit. To your point, Devon, I think when the movie commits to being weird, when it commits to taking the atmosphere and the sense of dread that it's trying to build throughout it, when it sticks to that, it's really at its best. And I think you hear that in Carpenter's score. I think you see that in some of the special effects, which are very simple, but also very, very creepy and very terrifying. And also the end of this movie, like it has maybe his best ending to a movie since The Thing. Um, And it's a trick that Carpenter plays a lot in his movies. And I see Devon's face right now. He's Mm -hmm. making the face that a... Like I, asking someone here, just try a bite of this smelly. He's dish. got he's got that doubting Thomas look about him. The stink face right now. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Um, where I think the movie stumbles is when it goes for commercial things. Like there's too much of a like, let's make them kind of zombies that attack and slash at people. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit too much of that going on here when it's just not we to your point devon it's not weird enough it falls back on very familiar tropes i do think you get some fantastic performances in this movie in particular not just you know donald pleasance who's always fantastic but victor wong as well as dr uh dr barack mvp who, victor wong for me yeah because when you hear the premise of this movie laid out you're like that's a bunch of hooey and nonsense. And you no, know, Carpenter himself, when describing like the science behind this, he's like, it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. And Wong and Pleasance have a the unenviable task of having to deliver what this is what's going on with a straight face and make it believable. And I think they do a remarkable job of that. Like you can they allow you to buy in a little bit more than I think you would do otherwise. So they they are the literal science versus faith in the movie. Like I love how there's like at least four dedicated scenes of just them talking back and forth mm-hmm. at each other to be like, yeah. yeah, see, science, faith. You see, they're together. Mm-hmm. Best scenes in the movie. <laughs> faith is interesting here. Faith is going to be because I, I 
it feels like faith is we'll you know we'll save it for the movie discussion and i'll just make a quick quick little side note right right now faith is interesting all right let's talk a Real little professional bit about the note there love that right professional note very profound yeah on levels <laughs> right yes we're nothing if not professionals here on this show um hey last episode we had fun little drops we almost sounded like a professional recording there were okay. there were moments where we like slipped out of our just tangential wildness to actually like sound like a like an actual yes. podcast that knew what we, we were, doing. were doing right yep. okay let's talk a little bit about the background of this movie and how it came together i have a few brief notes here um it really stems from carpenter's like frustration of working within the studio system from the mid 80s to the late 80s he was looking to make independent movies again and he was really stung by a trio of commercial failures which in part were like audiences rejecting the movies at the time but also in part by like studios having no idea what to do with these movies so kind of burying them so there's the initial box office disappointment of the thing which carpenter this to this day says hurt him not just financially but on a personal level like he felt personally rejected because that was such a passion project for him so for that movie to get so roundly rejected not only by critics at the time but also audiences at the time it it not only set his career back and it cost him a number of projects including firestarter it also just hurt him deeply as a filmmaker to feel like the, the kind of the first crack in confidence for him. Um, he also had done Starman, which was his attempt to kind of move away from horror and away from kind of like nihilistic filmmaking and make something that was kind of a little bit sweeter in its tone and kind of maybe like a more open movie, a more hopeful movie. And that also didn't set the box office on fire. And then finally, there's Big Trouble in Little China, which was supposed to be his foray into like Indiana Jones style action adventure movies. And Universal looks at what Carpenter gave him them and they have no idea what to do with it. They have no idea how to market it because the Carpenter, he's like. I don't want to make Kurt Russell the hero. Like, that's not interesting to me. You know, Carpenter is definitely a guy that he's going to march to the beat of his own drummer. He's like, what if we make Kurt Russell's character of uh, Jack Barton a buffoon? And the actual hero of the movie is going to be Dennis Dunn as Wang Chi. Like, that to me is a lot more interesting. And Universal sees that and they see, like, all the other stuff going on between like the martial arts and the supernatural element and the mysticism. And they're like, what the, what did we spend $50 million on? Which, and that's 50 million in 1986. You, you have to try really hard to spend that much money on a movie in 1986. Like that's, that's a studio comedy. That's a screen budget now, Mm -hmm. but in 1986, like that ain't easy. Right. So, Universal kind of buries the movie. They give Carpenter a ton of notes that he's not interested in in the slightest. He's like, could give two shits. I mean, is about it. And they're like, well, we're going to bury this thing. And it makes half of its budget back. 
So Carpenter is like, I'm fucking done with the studios at this point. Like, no interest. He's like, let me go back to making much smaller movies where I have complete control over the story, over the direction, over the score, over who gets cast, over the tone. This is all me. And he signs a two-picture deal with Alive Studios. And he has complete creative control. But the at the expense of like not having twenty million to fifty million dollars to play with anymore. He's gonna get three million dollars a picture at this point. And here's my question for y'all. That to me feels like the sweet spot for John Carpenter. Like aside from I was going through like his filmography and the budget versus the box office. And aside from Escape from New York, which is made for six million and that's twenty five million one to three million like if you give carpenter that much money he'll give you something he'll give you a at least a minor hit he'll give you something that everybody's going to make some money on but when you give him more than that if you give him 10 20 30 million dollars it tanks why is that and what is the sweet spot for carpenter I mean, I guess, I mean, I think it's hard to say that it's a budget thing because I think he, I I don't think it's him operating with said budget is the issue ever. Um, it is just kind of more um, the studio and kind of, uh, you know, and, and just like all this like kind of back and forth, like, you know, and, and we know, you know, Carpenter is a, a you know, a cynic. And, and it's interesting because there's like layers to his cynicism because like, for me, like, you know, you know, Christine is so good for me because I can like feel that like kind of like that anger that like, oh, like, you know, the thing flopped, like people are doubting me. Like, no, let me remind you, like, I can make a damn good ass movie. And he like didn't it's not a super like crazy concept. It's very straight down the middle. And they gave him ten million for it, and he like put every penny of that like to great use, you know. And like I felt that energy, um, so I feel like with this, I do feel like I don't know, like after again, like through the uh, the different subgenres and then the different uh, studios, uh, you know, because like uh, with Starman, Big Trouble, and Prince of Darkness, three different studios between them, so it's like he's like kind of bouncing around and. He's uh, just like kind of just being like, I don't know, man, what do y'all want? Like, that's like kind of the attitude I feel here. And like, which with the movie would in theory be good because like, you know, the main characters are mainly a bunch of scientists, cynical ones at that. And like, you know, you would want to kind of for that to like come through. But then like I kind of felt more just like the the ambivalence to it of just being like, I don't know, like here, like, I'm just going to kind of like, you know, so it's like, I, I, I'm not going to say that he's not trying because he totally is. This movie looks great. It sounds great. So I'm not going to say that he's not trying, but there's like a, there's a, a lack of, lack of motivation here that I can kind of feel through the film. I think it's less that he's not trying as hard or, or isn't, I think he's motivated to do something else. Um, like, so we have, I think two approaches from two very prominent horror filmmakers around this time. One is Carpenter who sees like this run of slashers kind of coming through and sort of cornering the market on this genre that he, I mean, and he kind of 
you know, arguments can be made that he kind of created the slasher with Halloween um, and seeing this thing that he created kind of managed to get away from him a little bit and become this kind of thing where it's it's very formulaic we we learned the wrong lessons from halloween and so we've got these tropes now that we've crafted around this piece of art um and he sees all that and says well i want to try something else let's do something completely 180 degrees away from that let's do some instead of something very gimmicky and schlocky with lots of blood and guts and uh, a mass killer let's do something that's very quiet and atmospheric and discussion heavy where the horror is this kind of ethereal sort of eldritch other um that is kind of unknowable unfathomable and i think it's something he doesn't quite perfect until in the mouth of madness Mm-hmm. But I, you can see the pieces of that forming here mm-hmm. as he starts moving in that direction. And then you also, and but then on the other hand, you get Wes Craven, who creates Freddy Krueger, who is kind of, I guess, the next iteration of the slasher, and sees that going in a more comical, formulaic mode. And so he has this kind of, well, if you can't beat him, join him. And a couple of years later, he's putting out Shocker, which isn't doing what he thinks it's going to do. So you've got, and I think actually... I think actually I thought Carpenter's deal was a three picture deal and he only made the first two and then gave the third one to Carpenter, which is what allowed Carpenter to make shocker is, is my recollection. Craven. Right. Which yep. allowed Craven to make shocker. So that's, that's my recollection of that. Hmm. Um, Craven's an interesting comparison for a couple reasons. Number one, I think because they're both like Titans of the genre, mm-hmm. obviously you could argue the two most influential voices in the genre, honestly. Oh, yeah. I mean, like Craven, I think in the 70s, the 80s and the 90s really steered where the genre went. I think with like Last House on the left, you saw that kind of gritty exploitation film, which you would see throughout the 70s in horror. Uh, Obviously, in Nightmare on Elm Street in 84, it revitalizes the slasher genre. Like, I don't think you see the back half of the Friday the 13th movies. And I don't think you see Halloween 4 if A Nightmare on Elm Street isn't so successful. Agreed. Because that came out at a time when that first wave of slasher films is kind of dead and buried. Right. And Craven is interesting because he's a very cerebral filmmaker, but he always kind of wanted to like leave the genre. Wasn't necessarily happy with being pigeonholed and working in genre films. And around this time he does like the serpent in the rainbow, which to me is his Prince of darkness. It's like, yeah, kind of relates to the other works that he's done, but it's also his attempt to do something different and weird and scary in a different, in a much different sense than what we're used to seeing from him. And I kind of get that sense with Prince of darkness. It's Carpenter to your point, wanting to do something, looking around at where horror is and going, not really interested in this right now. Been there and done that. He did talk about in an interview with Consequence of Sound, he talked about how much Dario Argento and Inferno mm. influenced Prince of Darkness, not so much in plot or structure, but this weird sense of like mm. freedom and this weird sense of like the story can go anywhere that it wants to go. It doesn't necessarily have to be tethered to anything. And Carpenter found that wonderful and wanted wanted that feeling back, wanted that sense of like 
I can do whatever I want in a movie. And that's what Prince of Darkness is to him. That's so I'm... funny because I just watched Inferno for the first time a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago also and gave it a similar score. And oh my gosh, that totally lines up. That's yeah. so funny. Um, and yeah, like it's it's interesting between the two of them because Craven, you know, um, at, at, on one hand, um, maybe doesn't have the variety um, and eclecticness that Carpenter's filmography has, but he's had that more consistent success because, you know, he played ball. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like as much as we love Carpenter, uh, you know, there are always the pros and cons to, you know, keeping your different artistic integrities and things like that, you know. Um, you know, it's like, uh, in, you know, it's like James Wan is kind of like today's Craven. Like, you know, not mm. to say that he's not still doing interesting things, but at the same time, like, he knows his lane and he knows how to play ball and he makes money, you know, and like, you know, and versus, you know, comparing him to, you know, one of the more artistic uh, contemporaries of these days. So it's like, you know, I can, uh, I feel I can, uh, you know, they're, they're, parallel careers are very interesting like Mm -hmm. them two and Cronenberg uh the three C's um all three of them uh have a a very interesting like a similar like a trajectory that like kind of weave in and out of each other agree yeah I just in Cronenberg by this time is leaving horror behind like he does the fly in 86 Mm -hmm. and he's like okay look I've pretty much said everything I can say and he leaves horror behind for the next four decades. Not that he doesn't continue to make very interesting films, but and a lot, know, I think that... a lot of those films still do have elements of body horror in them, like Existence and even just the the raw brutality of the violence and something like a history of violence are all mm-hmm. kind of harken back to that sort of body horror thing that he perfected in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Carpenter has talked about how much Scanners influenced his work on things like the fog being like okay this is what audiences want now so we have to make sure to include it like as much as carpenter is an iconoclast and very much like makes movies on his terms and does them the way that he wants to Mm -hmm. he always had an eye on what does the audience want because he still wants people to see his pictures so he's willing to kind of like bend a little bit if he can notice like all right Halloween too, like this is a snooze fest. I need to go back in and reshoot a lot of the things that Rosenthal did because in his words, it looks like an episode of Quincy MD and (laughs) audiences are going to reject that. So he's still like maybe less with studios, but more with like, what does the audience want to see? To get back to your question about budget, though, Mike, mm-hmm. I'm, I, as you were talking, I was reminded of M. Night Shyamalan, who I think is mm-hmm. another director who I think he does better with less money. He's one, and I think he would admit it, too. Like, when he started getting the bigger budgets for stuff like Last Airbender and After Earth, he started to lose the plot a little bit, and there was this disconnect. And then he g- basically gets his budget slashed for the vision for, hmm, for the visit. Visit? Yeah. And then from there, you see this kind of resurgence where he returns to basics, very small budgets, filming, you know, with a couple of noticeable stars uh, or a couple of established people that haven't done anything in a while and begins to rebuild his career. But even now, most of his budget is going into to small and he's still telling these very contained, mm-hmm. small, intimate stories. And I think that's where he thrives. And I think Carpenter, I don't. 
I don't know if Carpenter necessarily is one of those because even when he's got a, a big budget on something like The Thing, he's still telling a very intimate contained story. It's just mm-hmm. he's doing it all on location in very inclement conditions. Like there are other factors at play that kind of jack that oh. budget way up. So I again I think I think our your initial conceit is is correct in that it's the elevator pitch. It's the simplicity of the idea and what he can do with it more than it is the money. Yeah. I just think that studios don't know how to market his movies. I mean, obviously the thing is if you ask me what the greatest horror movie of all time is, the thing is going to be like right on that short list for me. Mm -hmm. And depending on my mood that day, it might be number one. Same. So it's not Carpenter's fault. Like he did nothing wrong. Um, Big Trouble in Little China is an absolute marvelous romp of a film. It is just a fun picture to watch from start to finish. It's a joy. It really is. Yeah. It's not so much, you know, Carpenter being the problem so much as it is studios don't know how to market these movies because they're kind of tough sells. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially this movie, like I'm looking at his filmography and this is the most movie he has in a movie while it also feels like nothing to me, but like the, as, but like looking at the pitch of this, of being like, okay, so there's a, there's a a case of liquid and it might be the devil. A giant thing of green jello. This movie is all vibes. We need scientists. Hey, they're also getting dream messages. And also, and it's just like, wait, what? Like, what? Is, yes. Like, so there's literally so much, like, you know. So it's like, yeah, where to even start to like market yeah. this movie? Oh yeah, and we'll, I guess we'll, we'll talk about that at the very end of this section, like how how well it did. Um, so, where were we? Oh, the inspiration for it comes from a dream uh, that Deborah Hill had and relayed to him of this like dark figure standing in like a church doorway. And Carpenter hurts like, well, I think I can create something around that and maybe I can freak Deborah out. Like that was his goal. He wanted to make it <laughs> as creepy as she had made it sound. He writes the movie under the um, pseudonym Martin Catermass, which if you're a fan of like old British sci-fi, these are old BBC sci-fi movies around Catermass and thematically that fits as well because they're about like alien beings coming down from earth and trying to take over humanity and science having to stop them through any means necessary it was a tribute to one of carpenter's hero nigel neal who created the crater mass character uh and carpenter had worked with neal on halloween 3 uh nigel neal had been conscribed to write the first script for halloween 3 And he turned in what Carpenter thought was a great script, but it wasn't scary enough. It wasn't up to snuff. It wasn't what they were looking for for that movie. And when Carpenter asked, like, Neil to rewrite the script, like, to make another pass at it, Nigel Neil told him to go shit in his hat in so many words. He was like, how dare you? How dare you, sir? Take my words and tell me that they need to be rewritten. And what really pissed Neil off was when Carpenter then made his own pass at the script. And then Tommy Wallace, a director, made another pass at the script. Neil basically demanded his name be taken off the project altogether. 
And, you know, Carpenter has said, like, eh, maybe you never want to really meet your heroes. That, like, as much as he respected Nigel Neal on a professional level and the characters he created, working with him was not fun. He found it, like, not a pleasant experience whatsoever. But he still pays tribute to Neil by writing under the name uh, Cottermass here. Also, if you watch, there are other references in the movie, like Brian, the main character, he's wearing a Neil University sweatshirt. He says he transferred from Neil University. That's a very direct tip of the cap to Nigel Neil. Um, Alice Cooper comes on board and kind of a fun little story how they land... Um, Alice Cooper, like the executive producer of this movie, is also Cooper's manager. Um, he gets Carpenter and Cooper tickets for WrestleMania 3. That's where the two meet one another. And Cooper's like, look, I want to be in one of your movies. I'd love to do something. You know how much I love horror. Like, come on, you're the master of horror. Like, hook me up, brother. You know, we have the same managers. What's going on? And Carpenter's like, you know that thing in your concert you do where you have like the mic stand and you like put it through someone and then it like spits out the fake blood and you do that as kind of a bit during your concerts. He's like, yeah. He's like, do you think you could do that with like a bicycle? And Cooper's like, sure. It's like, great, you're hired. I've got the role for you. And that's how Cooper gets the role of Street Schizo, I think is how he's... <laughs> very very sensitively right. named character, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, in the 1980s, we were very sensitive to, like, mental health conditions. All sorts of things, really. Houselessness, yeah. yeah. So very, very sensitive um, naming there. Uh, film is shot mostly on location, like Carpenter shoots it at USC for the classroom scenes where he went to film school. And like to know Carpenter, like he talks very warmly about his days in film school. He's like, this is where I learned everything I ever needed to to shoot a picture. So he always loves to return to his alma mater. Um, the exteriors and the first interior, that ornate layout, are all filmed in an actual church in Los Angeles which is still standing to this day and still used to this day. And then oh, shit. The, I got to go find it. Yes, yeah, please do. So. And you can probably find it on YouTube, uh, but Scream Factory on their special edition, like Scream Factory does an incredible job on Carpenter's movies. Um, you, the Hallowed Grounds of Horror is like a 10 minute featurette on there and they do tour some of these sites. So you can definitely find it. Um, the scene, the, the scene where the, whenever you go where this cylinder is lit up, like that basement of the church, that's actually a rundown hotel. It had been condemned, been out of commission for years. And the crew had to, excuse me, sign a waiver saying, if you're going to shoot here, you're liable for yourself because you might fall through the floor. So, oh, I thought it was, was going to say you were going to be like liable for like if you get possessed, but yes. that, that also makes sense though. Different waiver, but yeah, they do <laughs> they do sign off on that. Um, so the film's released uh, 1023, October 23rd, 1987, and it makes about 14.2 million bucks on a $3 million budget. And to me, that's a success mm -hmm. because like you said, Devon, there are no stars in this movie. There's no, like we joked last week, like we got to get the kids in the theater, call Hal Holbrook. Um, similar deal. Like there's no stars in this movie. 
It's a weird premise. It, it's a tough sell. And it still makes almost five times its budget back. Mm-hmm. And that's before you get to what where these movies really made money in the 80s, and that's home video. Right. So really the theatrical run is almost kind of a cherry on top because I guarantee you this money made buku bucks in the rental market. Yeah. I mean, this, that, that was Carpenter's bread and butter. And that's the same for this one. Like it, I think Carpenter said it died a pretty swift death in the theater, but found its people like so many of his movies did found its people when they were released on home video. So yeah, he owes a lot to uh, the people that uh, design his covers. Cause like the, the poster and cover art for his movies are always so great. And I feel like that's like oh, yeah. literally like half the reason, like, cause even though like I hadn't seen this movie, I could always remember the poster for this. I'm always being like, Oh, what is that? I wonder. Uh, it just was always kind of mysterious to me so like he kind of definitely owes a lot to that and uh as far as uh you know the video rental store uh just yep. choosing based in, based off the cover alone <laughs> it's a lost art isn't it i mean when you it think is. about that when you needed to stand out i mean how many movies have have we seen from our days as a kid like going to the video store picking something off the shelf and going like oh i like the cover of this and then renting the movie like that is a lost art now mm-hmm. it felt like it died with scream when everything went to like here's the title of the movie and five floating heads on the cover yeah because at that point there's, there's sort of a lack of imagination that goes into what the cover art is and then you know rentals die within the decade after that like mm-hmm. the, the whole rental market is upended after that um by stuff like uh netflix and redbox mm-hmm. so yeah. they completely changed so and now it's what is it it's it's what whatever the thumbnail they choose on streaming is which god what a, what a cursed world we live yeah. in <laughs> it's like it's either that or it sucks that they will like get like cool art commission through these like artists that they like find online and like use it in like the marketing and stuff but then like the main cover ends up being like just like the worst thing like uh that that like uh the the scream six blu-ray cover i would never buy that like it looks awful looks stupid i'll wait until there's like a cool like limited mm-hmm. edition cover because it's like yeah people they not using uh the, the fun ones right yeah. i think scream factory does a tremendous job with so many of their releases and like the artwork is beautiful and really captures the picture, but then you can also reverse it and then go to that original cover art if that's something that you would rather have. You yeah. can like turn the slip cover around and do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've done like a tremendous job. I think pretty much every Carpenter movie I own is like a Scream Factory special edition, uh, and they are really invaluable tools to have. I think that's the same for me. I was, I just had to do the math, but no, I think that's right. Yeah. And God, those covers are the cover for this one in particular. I kind of, it honestly reminds me of those kind of latter day scream posters where you've got like the whole cast and kind of this kind of cascading, but then the -hmm. the church at the bottom and got it. And it's, but it's painted like it's hand painted. So it looks really good and not in like the, the like clip art, photoshop kind of lets okay we're gonna cut this still image of these two people who've literally never met in real Mm -hmm. life and paste them next (laughs) to each other kind of way that we do those now well i think it's funny like carpenter says like well this died a quick 
death at the theaters. I think now if there was like an A24 release that was made for like this little and made five times its budget, we would celebrate that, right? You know, and I think in some ways like Carpenter is the victim of his own success because he, with his third movie in Halloween, he creates a movie that is not only changes the genre as we know it and establishes him as like a true master of horror, right. but also financially it's the most successful independent movie of its time. And that's a record that would stand until 1999 with the Blair Witch Project. So right. everything that doesn't make Halloween money is seen as some sort of not failure, but it's somewhat disappointing Whereas if you make a movie for this little and it does that well, that to me is a success. Mm -hmm. um, important to note, like a year later, Halloween 4 is going to come out. And, you know, that makes about 18 million in theaters. And it's made for a right around the same amount of money as this. It's not like much more successful, but it's considered like a triumphant return for that franchise. So it's funny how expectations kind of weigh in on that. And I think, again, it's all these, you don't really know how much it made in rentals, but guarantee that it just absolutely cleaned up, you know, once it hit the mom and pa like video shops of the world. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Especially cause like people don't real video cassettes were like a hundred bucks to own. Right. Like, they were fucking expensive. In the early days, they were so prohibitively yeah. expensive. Like, renting was the option, unless you yeah. were one of the Hollywood elite, I guess. Yeah. I spend more than five bucks on a Blu-ray, and I'm like, ooh, do I really need, <laughs> you know? Yep. I just bought Jaws 2, 3, and 4 on Blue, and it was like 12 bucks. And I'm like, all right, four bucks a movie. That's pretty good. I can swing that, you know. I did. I did the full nine film Planet of the Apes box set not too long ago, and that was forty five bucks, like right around forty five bucks. And I'm like, five bucks a movie. Three of them are on four K. The rest on blue. I'll buy that for five dollars. Sweet deal. Yeah. Yep. Would you buy that for a dollar? Honestly, absolutely. I wouldn't. Yeah, for a dollar. If I buy it for five, I'd buy it All for right. one. Yeah. Let's talk about this movie. Let's. And I guess I want to ask how this movie does setting up the mood. I think one of the things that like. You'd said like this movie's all vibe. It is. Like that's really what this movie is. And I think you get that right from the outset in that the first ten and a half minutes of the movie are the opening credits. Mm -hmm. And it's really that simple pulsating score like that, those three notes and then two percussion notes that play repeatedly throughout it to set up this really eerie mood. And there are only three very brief sections where a character talks. Like one is like a nun telling Donald Pleasance's character, only named the priest, why the cardinal was there, who he was there to see. And then two classroom sections with Victor Wong's character where he's talking about the physics. But those are like 30 seconds each. Other than that, it's really following all of our players around, establishing the space, but really establishing the mood. Is the movie successful in doing that? Do you feel like the first 10 minutes of this movie give you that eerie feeling? And Chewie, I'll remind you, podcasting is an 
auditory medium. Oh, you so couldn't hear my. Th- you couldn't hear so my. So giving me a up? thumbs up right now doesn't really do much for listeners. You couldn't hear. You couldn't hear those. Oh, I thought those were going to translate. Damn. Um, no, absolutely. I think it does. I think there's something, and I think Carpenter understands this. There's something about a sustained sound. Like he sustains that those notes, like you just mentioned, those notes for a long time. I mean, the Halloween score is about sustaining and then knowing when to push and when to pull back. And I think that's something that Carpenter does both as a musician and as a filmmaker very well. And I'm also a big fan of movies that start in relative silence. Um, One of my favorite films of all time is Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. And there is no dialogue in that movie until almost 12 minutes in. Like it is that the everything about the setup, everything, there's no dialogue over any of that. And I, I think that's incredible. I love that because film is, among other things, a visual medium. And you can tell so much story just by showing us what we need to know rather than, you know, the clunky writing of, well, here we are at school. Let's we're at graduate level. Let's go to our professor's class. You know, like you 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 don't need any of that. But you get all those pieces just from that that quiet beginning, um, and I, 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 and it does it creates the atmosphere. And this film is all atmosphere, uh, everything about it. Like any sense of dread that you feel from this movie, I think, depends on your being invested from the jump. Um, and if you're not, you're gonna have a bad time. Um, because I think this movie, it, it does. I think it establishes that tone early and I think it keeps it consistent throughout. Um, if you, if you get hooked on the vibes, you're going to just ride that high all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do really like the, the intro for sure, because, uh, again, like the score is pretty fantastic and, and it does set the mood almost even a little too good because like, it does like really like had me, you know, introduced in, I'm like, okay, like, you know, like I'm kind of feeling this tension around, like there's this kind of presence and like this whole thing. And like, there was like a kind of a fun, like kind of like weird, uh, like it, it felt like, um, it felt like a, like political thriller, like the way that they like kind of like cut the intro with a, to like kind of get this urgency and, and being like, okay, so like, let's get the, you know, okay. The priest and the quantum physicist, they know each other and have a history. And then, uh, you know, all these things, uh, oh, we're getting told to cancel our, all of our plans for the weekend. And like the way that it's like all like kind of uh, throw like put together really fast in this uh, kind of way, like makes it be like, hey, like something something big's going down, like something's happening. And then so like I feel like it's like, yeah, he sets it up, but he sets it up almost like to it because then for like the whole middle chunk, I'm like sitting here. I'm like, OK, so like. Like, I feel it. I know it's coming. I, I hear the music. I know something's around, but like, okay, like, you know what? And, and I, I love vibey movies. Like, uh, like I'm more, I'm definitely a, you know, more of a vibe concept person uh, versus like uh, the, the story. And I guess it's not that I needed like any sort of story to make sense, but it's just like, I, I just feel like there, there, like we, he gets so much mileage out of, you know, being able to uh, establish this vibe that you know we're kind of just like coasting off of that for most mood that for me if i do want this to like go like you know to the next level then it's like okay let's take uh you know these all these like interesting concepts that we're introducing and like really like you know get funky with it and i feel like you know we we get like this you know i I guess for me i guess uh because i like slow burns if like the payoff is like worth it for me 
and like you know uh i i found myself like kind of you know you know just really being into this like kind of underlying tension really wanting to figure out what it is and then like kind of but then looking at like the runtime of the movie being like okay there's a you know 15 minutes left and we're still trapped inside of a room right now so like mm-hmm. uh what, what's going down here you know so it's like i don't know it, it, it maybe milks it a little too much for me yeah yeah I, you know it's interesting you just said what we're still trapped in a room here because i do feel like this movie to a certain extent is carpenter playing the hits again in that it brings you a lot of the vibes from like assault and precinct 13 mm-hmm. which is a you know a siege movie that's a good which call. is carpenter's yeah which is carpenter's tribute i think to rio bravo mm-hmm. or real uh the old john wayne movie yeah and I think in a lot of ways, like Carpenter with this movie is trying to get back to his roots. Like he is bringing back persons like Donald Pleasance that he had a working relationship with. Uh, He has like Dennis Dunn and Victor Wong, who he uh, had returned, who had worked with on Big Trouble. Like he's bringing them back. Like I think we've talked before, like Carpenter is at his best when he is familiar with everyone he's working with. And by this time, like, uh, Deborah Hill doesn't have anything to do with this picture. Dean Cundy isn't here. Tommy Wallace, like Nick Castle, like all of his, all of his familiar players aren't here. And you, it kind of feels like Carpenter trying to recreate the glory days in mm. some ways, or really trying to recreate that sense of comfort that comes from filmmaking. Cause he was like, really, when you hear the read interviews or listen to interviews with him about this period, of time like he's burned out he's just like yeah. I'm, I've, I'm almost done at this point i don't want to even do anything anymore and you can feel him trying to recreate those days with the persons he's working with but also just kind of like that sense of paranoia that i think worked so well in movies like halloween and the thing um the nihilistic endings of those movies where it's like good doesn't maybe good triumphs for a little bit but evil is still lurking out there um that claustrophobic feel even little moments like when uh the character of brian is sitting in the classroom and he looks out the window and like that black car pulls up feels a lot like that moment in halloween when jamie lee turns out her turns her head out the window and she sees like the station wagon and michael there like that sense of like something is off about this and I don't know quite know what it is. All of those things, I think, work in the film's favor. I love the first 10 minutes of this movie, like while those credits are really rolling very slow throughout it, because it does, I think the the vibe it sets up pays off at the end. Like whenever it gets weird, it really, really works. I agree. If anything, if anything, when it's, veers away from that and isn't weird enough that's when it doesn't quite work for me when it's just like all right now we're gonna like attack people and spit on them it's like well i don't necessarily need this (laughs) yeah i mean oh oh, i thought my mic was down uh yeah i mean i do um like you know he does seem definitely more interested in kind of sitting with like uh, the, the underlying like kind of uh, mystery tension of it. And I guess for me, like when we have like this cast of like, you know, supposedly super smart people, 
and things like that. Like, I find it odd that, like, you know, they spend so much time of, like, you know, the, uh, you know, professor and uh, priest, like, you know, keeping information from them and, like, things like that. And it's like, okay, like, hey, like, why, like, okay, why are we bothering with this? And then, like, and then he kind of, like, uses, like, then, like, the, the typical horror stuff to, like, kind of catch the tone and energy back up, I guess. But then... Also, we're not really, he doesn't really seem like very interested in like the possession type stuff either because it's like, it's kind of like has a evil dead vibe without the like fun and theatricality of it. Mm -hmm. Like when he's like kind of doing that. So it's like, you can tell he's not really interested in doing that and he is more interested in the mystery, but then he spends a little too much time in the mystery for it. Like, I feel like we could have fast tracked like, hey, like you want to tell them, you know, how uh, dire this danger is and like the potential threat and like let's get everything out in the open so we'd you know stop wasting time if we're supposed to be on a time clock you know so it's like i feel like we could just like fast track the mystery angle a little bit particularly when people start disappearing and then dying like when Wyndham's head falls off that should be maybe our first indication that we should probably start explaining some more of this I feel like they have by that point, though. I feel like by the time Wyndham's head falls off and then you have, like, uh, right after that, like, Calder cuts his own throat. Mm-hmm. Like, that's when things really start to amplify. So I agree. I, in its defense, I do think that, you know, and again, they're they're all scientists, so they're trained to look at it from the scientific method. Mm-hmm. They're trained to, like, okay, we need evidence. And there's a... To your point, Devon, there's a moment in the film where Brian starts to notice, like, things seem to be, like, moving on their own. Like, there seems to be some, like, telekinesis here. And we should probably let the others know. And Barack is saying, no, we need to wait. We need to be able to prove this before we can go to others with it. We need to see if this is some sort of anomaly or if there's another explanation for it. Because that's science. Right. And as a horror fan part of me is like f fuck no like i'm like shit's getting spooky and we're gonna go about and let folks know and maybe get the hell out of here but you're as from a scientific point of view it's like okay we need to be able to prove our theory first and that makes sense to me like why they're approaching although i do like how none of them know why they're there they're just like yeah like i mean i guess it's partially a morality thing of like one you know uh, a professor barack is like, oh, yeah, just uh, I'm going to, you know, casually tell you to cancel all your plans. We're sleeping over. We're staying there. We're studying. We're doing these things. Oh, what? No, I'm not going to tell you just yet. And because I think it's interesting that, like, if they are kind of going into the, you know, okay, we're scientists, we want the proof angle, um, then wouldn't they be more easy or like susceptible to be like okay well i'll just tell you out the gate you're not gonna believe me anyways until it's proven versus being like okay no we gotta like we gotta wait till we get the proof instead of doing it vice versa if like we're gonna be dealing with these types of people but again it's also uh just the morality angle of it because these are like i mean yeah they're scientists but they're also still trying to get degrees here they're still technically students I love how he, you know, picks them because they're a little more expendable than, I don't know, getting the best of the best to come in and uh, and explore this whole thing. 
So like, I've, yeah, all he needs just to do up. is throw out the like, of course, you know, by attending this, like you can expect very good grades. He's a little so shady like, is all oh, I'm saying. Okay. I, I, I love him for that. Like, I like that he's a flawed character, but a uh, uh, professor, he's, he's shady. Yeah. He, he's mm-hmm. shady. like, you don't have your doctorates, but you might as well have. Right. And that's, yeah, basically what he's saying. The I think part of it also is the fact that this is as much of a mystery for the audience as it is for them like the audience is sort of piecing it together because they all have different pieces and we have every piece that each of them have and so the audience is able to kind of start putting it together just as because the audience doesn't know why they're there either so i think part of maintaining the mystery for them is maintaining the mystery for us so that Mm -hmm. we're kind of coming along with this as well and to your point these are scientists these are people with a predisposed um idea about religious things and in fact Burak says at one point one of the hardest things for the mind to come in contact with is something that it doesn't believe can be true something to that effect i'm butchering the line but that's that's in essence what he says and that that struck a chord with me this time because that's exactly why he's been kind of keeping all this information from them is because he doesn't want them to dismiss what's in front of them out of hand until I, i think you you did say this already devon but until they're presented with the evidence for it and then they can make that case. So I think there's, yeah, that's it's a part of the tapestry. I, I agree. Maybe a little too long, but. Yeah. Another, an important part of doing research, and I don't think this is in Carpenter's, the forefront of Carpenter's mind, but an important part of doing research is not coming to it with like a preconceived notion. Like you don't want to, you don't want to do a research project and then say, and then come to it with like, this is the conclusion that I already have. And now I'm going to like manipulate the evidence in order to prove that conclusion. Right. You might have a hypothesis, but you want to remain as neutral as possible and impartial as possible to see where the research takes you. And I think if you're given all of that right away, you're going to either try to prove or disprove the research based on where you're at. Um, hmm. It's True. very, True. but it's, interesting to say the least because let's let's talk about it like we say this is like science versus religion but it's really not in this movie like this is a movie where science is used to kind of bolster religious claims although you come to find out pretty quickly the religious claims that have been made are all pre uh, predicated on a lie that has been spread for over two thousand years yeah, and yep. it's interesting because, like, in because they are even still more uh, exploring it from a faith angle. Like, yes, this does deal with like uh, I guess the devil or the son of the devil, and like they mention Jesus, but like it's still not you know really uh, particularly interested in the religion angle of it. It's really just being like, okay, like hey, like okay, just of, of any uh, you know alternative force that it could be. Okay, like this is an evil. Uh, a potential thing and like we want you to use your science to like kind of explain that so and, and if they are going to be true scientists i guess they do have to do it without the um kind of a, a you know true moral hindrance uh to a degree so maybe that does is kind of you know for uh, the professor to get the best results you know of uh, kind of holding you know uh certain variables to the chest a little bit uh so yeah, so it is it is uh, fascinating in that way. I'm curious if you guys um, would uh, be interested in like because these are all mainly like uh, from one 
uh, you know, section, like it's a mainly like kind of physicists and things of that nature. Uh, would you have liked to have seen like kind of a more well-rounded of the different, uh, uh, different science backgrounds? Cause like me, I'm personally like a chemistry biology person. I feel mm-hmm. like, uh, it, uh, if they would have like maybe had like a few of those type characters in there as well to like kind of round out this like kind, kind of a scientific look at this, uh, thing that they're trying to investigate. Uh, How many or, more characters do you want in this movie? Well, not Devon. more characters. It's just like they're all like, I know that like uh, one is uh, a radiologist. They say uh, Susan is a radiologist many a times, but uh, they all are kind of. Um, and that she's very married. Yeah. With the glasses. Yeah. With the glasses. Um, you know, so it's like, but they're all like, one is like applied physics. One is like, uh, you know, theoretical. And then like, so is like, uh, you know, so they're all in like different physics backgrounds, but they're all still under the physics umbrella. So, I mean, if we like was switched a few of those up, just like we can have like one general physicist and then one mm-hmm. general chemist and one general well, biologist. I think what it is is like Carpenter wrote this after he had been reading up on like quantum mechanics and theoretical and applied physics. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, this stuff is like really interesting. Like uh, atoms and like a subatomic level, like this is fascinating. But it's not like he had like a deep held understanding of these concepts. He was like, this could be really cool to apply to a movie. But I think he has said in interviews and um, Peter Jason, who is uh, late Dr. Leahy. And this has said like, you know, I would go to John and I would ask like, so what's going on here with the science? Like, what is my understanding of it? And Carpenter would look at him and go, dude, it's all a bunch of mumbo jumbo. That sounds cool. <laughs> right. That's really just sell it. Just like sell it in the delivery it's not meant to make a hell of a, it's not meant to hold up under scrutiny. So it's not like you're using the idea of like theoretical physics in any sort of meaningful way, except that it sounds really cool right? for the movie. Would it be great? I, so I don't, I'm not really, I don't necessarily care so much if there's like a, a nuclear physicist or a biologist or whatnot. I, I guess it, I guess it's just if you're gonna have so much science, but then not care about it, then like what are we doing? Then let's put that energy like elsewhere. Then you know, and I mean that's I that's <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what it is. At the end of the day, though, that's exactly what it is. I mean, yeah. if it's if it's maybe to help define some of these characters a little more, because I, I agree with your your prior assessment, Devon. These characters are not well defined, with a few exceptions. Um, these they characters are paper thin. Yeah, at best, like sometimes onion paper thin, like just you can see right through them. Uh, Gossamer, Gossamer character designs here. But um, like as maybe a way to clear, more clearly define their roles and why they're there. Like we've got the linguist and the radiologist and the five or six physicists and then whatever Lomax is doing there and Calder, the microbiologist, like a few of the roles we are defined. We did have the linguist. Yeah, we did. Uh, Lisa, yeah. Lisa, the Lisa. linguist, oh, LOL. Mm. Um, maybe better than Connie, the linguist, or maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but there's, you know, that as a way of maybe defining those roles a little better um, then. Yeah, I absolutely see your point. But I mean, if the science is as, kind of hollow as the 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 religious history elements then i i don't think carpenter's putting that much attention into into those things and and maybe that's to the detriment of the movie maybe it's not i don't know well i think the purpose of the science in this movie is to take the religious angle and explore it 
not from a spiritual angle, but from a metaphysical angle. This idea that like what we have thought of as these spiritual concepts of God and Satan right. are not actual spiritual concepts. They are physical concepts. And this idea of matter and antimatter and that in physics, like every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that's what you're seeing here. Like what we think of God and think of Satan like Satan is the natural antithesis of God. It is the antimatter. And it's why I think what they're talking about here is how this is able to work on a subatomic level. Like these ideas that we hold concrete, we're able to break them down to sub to its subatomic level at that point. And that is where Satan and the son of Satan live, like in those microscopic spaces. But you combine all those microscopic spaces and you're able to create this antimatter and this anti-God, this anti-light, this being of dark. This kind and of I distilled like, essence, yeah. which is a swirly green goo. Which also right. gives you access to send messages neuro through people's dreams. Right. It, it all, like, the tachyon messages I mean, that are sent. Right. I, I guess for me, because not that I need it to be explained and, and I'm being very passionate about this because I, I like, I love the potential of this movie and like, it like, like frustrates me in that way. Cause I think it's like, so it's like it either have a less of doing like a bunch of small ideas that you're not really going to explore. If you're going to paint in broad strokes, then like, okay, let's have less ideas and then like focus in on like, at least if it's like, okay, give me either, Give me a, a little answers from science or a little answers from faith or give yeah. me a little more of like these characters feeling this, um, you know, existential right. fear of this like kind of situation that they can't comprehend. And but I, I feel like it, I just don't get either from any of those right. like three departments. Give me at least one, something from one of those departments. But I think the idea here is this idea of faith as we know it, this mm -hmm. idea of like God as a spiritual being and Jesus being the son of God, like you discover that that's built on a lie. Like you're supposed to discredit that because as it said, like the church, like even the Vatican doesn't know that the brotherhood of sleep even exists right. and that this sect of the church is known from the get go that what we think of God is actually science. It's mm. actually, actually mm. physics. And what we think of Jesus is not Jesus, the son of God, but, and I really like this idea, like Jesus is an extraterrestrial being that comes from like a very human like race. I'm so of creatures. down for that. Yeah. Which I think is great. <laughs> I'm so down so for this, that. <laughs> so, and I think we've talked about this in the other Carpenter movies that we've done like Carpenter's distrust of institutions mm -hmm. comes through here as well. Cause you have in Donald Pleasanton's Donald Pleasanton's character of the priest discovering that everything that he has learned about his faith has actually been built upon a lie. And now he wants to expose this lie to the world. Like it's saying science is now at a place where we can explain these metaphysical things and the world needs to know about it. And that's where the science comes in. It's not so much about religion at that point, because everything that we've been come to know about God, the father and Jesus, the son was actually a story that was created by the disciples because they didn't think that humanity could actually handle the actual truth of uh, matter and antimatter. Until that's such a time as the science it. caught up with it. Yeah. yeah. So, that, he, so he's basically saying it's both. He's saying 
Mm-hmm. Uh, science is, he's saying religion is actually science, but then science is actually also religion. It's but like I mean, a palindrome. isn't that, but that's consistent, right? Like yeah, the, I mean, that makes sense. Like the myths that created the early religions are all basic, just like basically ancient peoples trying to figure out how the world around them worked. Right. And the only way that they could conceive of that was people doing those things. So it makes sense that one of the most prominent world religions would have a similar start. And with a, that organization in particular being one that is so dedicated to secrecy and to the things that are hidden, um, a 2000 year old cover up isn't that outside the realm of possibility. Right. Uh, in that respect. And that's where I think the, the ideas of this movie start to get really fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, it's less about, does this science actually work? Because you know, I'm not a applied physicist. So like, I have no idea how to make these things actually work with one another. The idea that you can send these uh, Tassion messages back through time like the idea of sending something from 1999 back to 1987 if you're telling me that in the concept of this movie that once you're moving past the speed of light you're able to basically move backwards through time and you're also able to pinpoint historic events and like okay these people will be in this place on this day at this time Therefore, we can t- send a targeted message that message to them through this scientific concept. I'm like, I'm on board with that. It's That's not pretty targeted, much though. It's I, not targeted, though. That's the thing. He says that it's just going back and it keeps going. And back. that's why, the, like, multiple of them keep getting it in the same vicinity. They're just sending it, like, to an area, which is... Like, but it's yeah. targeted in that they know, like, this is the where area, it needs yes. to It's go. in that area, yeah. yeah but yeah. It's, it's, like, it's not targeted to a time, but a place. I, and yes. he's, he's like, these people have been seeing this for years. Like, the people that have been here, they've been seeing this for years. Um, and I, I kind of love that. Like, there's this... And he sets that up at the beginning of the movie, too. Like when he's talking about the Victor Wong is talking about the things that we know about reality and time. And he says, you know, time moves in one direction. This is what we know. This is established. Chuck all that out the window. It's theoretical physics, bitches, Mm -hmm. like basically. And and so he said, so when that comes back, that shouldn't be so much of a slap in the face to us because he he's kind of prepared our minds for this idea that science is going to get a little wonky here people he, I, I bet in his class he's uh the type of professor that doesn't give out like paper assignments it's all like points based on lecture like he's one of those professors hundred uh, percent for, for his class and and i also love how like uh optimistic carpenter was that he was like yeah we're gonna be like pretty close to like controlling uh neurotransmitted messages by 1999 uh, wishful thinking, John. All of all of science fiction, <laughs> in some level, is based on that kind of a hope, right? Yeah, I think you used nineteen ninety nine because it's the turn of millennium at that point, and that's you know that's why it's coming from that. Plus, it's not that far around the corner mm-hmm. either. It's not like this message is from three hundred years in the future. It's like, eh, I'm going to be dust and bones by then. Yeah, twelve, yeah, 12 years, years. It's like uh, I'm hoping that to be actually doing does. Some shit. That actually does make sense because, like, yeah, you would want to get from someone like more recent. That's going to have like mm-hmm. the most impact. I thought it would yeah. have been a very funny twist though if there were like was one more scene and then there was like another nine and then it's like no, it's 
1999. <laughs> oh, at that point, who gives a fuck? At that point, <laughs> that church is not matter. still standing, Devon. <laughs> right. That church is rubble at that point. So I, I think I'm most fascinated by, and I, I think if I apologize if I'm repeating myself here, the idea that like the church knew the truth, mm-hmm. set up this cover-up, mm-hmm. To such a degree that even like the higher ups in the Roman Catholic Church didn't know it. For what for what means I don't know except to enrich themselves. Said, well, we were able to center humanity. We were able to center ourselves, and we essentially were salespeople for the past two thousand years. And this is what helped us keep power. And this idea of once again not trusting institutions and institutional power. And questioning everything is like a very central tenet to so much of Carpenter's work. That's where I find things fascinating. And then once that's been exposed, needing to lean on this group of scientists in order to now, now we need to sell the actual truth. Right. And that this is, I think that works as well because this is part of his Apocalypse trilogy, like The Thing, Mm -hmm. Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, where you've got each one is kind of an apocalypse of a different part of humanity. Like it's the thing is about the destruction of identity. Um, Prince of darkness is about the destruction of institutions, both faith and science or the church and Mm -hmm. maybe academia perhaps. And then in, in the mouth of madness, it's the human mind. It's that which we think we know and perceive and experience. And so yeah, Carpenter hates institutions, but I think he's he knows that there is a horror in taking something that is so integrated into part of every everyone's life and just yeah, destroying it in front of your eyes. And I you almost wonder like what getting this knowledge out like what it would do. Mm. Right? Like what sort of there's no talk of any sort of afterlife in this movie i guess except for maybe this idea that matter can't be destroyed it's just right Mm -hmm. continues on as something else but even that as an idea isn't explored but if this truth were to come out that like christ was an alien being and he was put to death not for claiming he was the son of god but for being from another dimension or another interplanetary being that they say he was gaining power and followers. So they put him to death, but there's no exploration of like what that actually means. Like not unlike what the real sort of Jesus, power was but, he gaining? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what sort of power was he really gaining? <laughs> I mean, if you look at it from the religious angle, he's put to death because he's preying on the first century Jewish need for messiah and the face mm. of rome mm. and so he's basically fomenting in, insurrection at a most at the most nationalistic time of the year for for the jews yeah. and they're like dude if he starts some shit rome is going to come down on us and we're going to so we need to do what we can to mm-hmm. get him out of the way is yeah. is really kind of what it, i mean it, it, that's in the text like you look at it from the that's what it is so yeah. i mean from this perspective maybe that's how they describe this idea that's how they contextualize this idea um within their grander narrative right so 
It, it's so wild, but I'm on board. Like, I, I like this. This is the closest. If I if if I had to try to explain, I'm like, all right, this uh, you, you, like because religion in general, like when you do like you know explain certain things out loud, it sounds wild, you know. So it's like I like that. Um, uh, he's uh kind of yeah playing with a in in interesting. You know, uh, still being able to fold in his like traditional like conspiracy theory type stuff into a uh, story like this because you like kind of wouldn't really expect it. Uh, I feel like that's like kind of like the the one like a uh, wild card subgenre in this movie where it's like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, it's this also this this big old conspiracy theory of you know withholding information because it it wouldn't be a Carpenter movie without it. No, right. I want to ask about Walter. And I want to talk about Walter for a little bit, mm-hmm. played by uh, Dennis Dunn here, who is a really bizarre character. What a weird character, yeah. This is the it's, worst. It's <laughs> yes. not quite comic relief. It's not quite played as comic relief. Because uh, the attempts at comedy fall way short so often. Even within the context of the movie, they fall flat. Yeah. Like, no one's laughing at Walter. And I guess the idea of, like, Walter in gay panic mm. in this movie because there's a reading of this movie where it's an allegory for the AIDS epidemic in that you have this mutation that has spread through fluid and it's a death sentence from the time that you receive it which this being 1987 this is the really the height of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s um, and that being at the time a disease that like what it was spread obviously through bodily fluid and usually through sexual transmission or blood transfusions gone awry. Um, this idea that like Walter is to me coded as a queer character, like in explicit terms. Oh, he totally, like he totally has point, lines where he like, yeah, like says like, cause like whenever he like says he has the date and then like, um, and the guy like says like, Oh, with a who, guy, he doesn't, he? He, yeah, What's he doesn't, his name? Yeah. and he doesn't deny it. And then, but then later on he like, also like, it like makes like, uh, like kind of does like those like kind of passing jokes that a gay person would do to be like, Oh yeah, right. I can make this joke about me because I am gay. Like he like kind of right. had like a, a few lines like that. And then like, so like any of his like misogynistic jokes, like felt like they were like, to be like over dramatized at one point that like, yeah, when I was younger, like my doctor said, of course I have anxiety. He called it homosexual panic. And the reading I have of that line is that like, he was afraid of being queer and what that would mean. So, or like, what if I'm outed or what if people think I'm this, but there's also the last act of the movie where Walter is literally trapped inside of a closet (laughs) Being held nose. at bay by like three, it does not get any more on the nose than that. He's literally in a closet and he has to, trapped inside while there are three women outside of it. Mm-hmm. And he has to like break out of the closet. No, I it mean, doesn't really get While a man tunnels the through the back with a, a stick like. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I didn't even think about the, the dude tunneling, but like, cause I was thinking of the fact that it's like, yeah, he's trapped and he like comes out and then just like bashes like Lisa with a, like beats the shovel with a brick. And mm-hmm. it's like, so, I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, like I uh, said a few episodes ago, Carpenter, if that's the case, pro gay, because he's like, yeah, like I'm embracing the gayness. Get away from me, women. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in one funny way, but then like, they, cause there's also like, um, 
you know, like, because I like that if this is a AIDS allegory, it's also not just on the homosexuality angle of it. Because mm-hmm. if because if it was, then they would have made Walter like the inciting incident. He would have been like the host mm-hmm. for everything kind of happening. And like it would right. have implied that I like that it's not him. And like it, you know, still goes through other characters. Mm-hmm. But there's also like conversation, too, about, um, you know, comparing religion to a drug. And like, and this is like the uh, Down Pleasant's like going on a like a monologue about it, uh, you know, which I found fascinating that like having a priest criticizing like you know bad religious institutions himself and then comparing it to a drug, which also is a you know contributing factor to HIV and AIDS, not just you know uh, mm-hmm. sexual behavior, but also people yeah. sharing needles and you know drug related uh, you know yeah. in- inducing as well. So so I like that even if this is an AIDS uh, allegory, which I don't think he's like. I mean, it's there for sure, but he's not like trying to make a bold He's not state. bashing you on the head with it. No, he's not bashing right. you on the head with it. And he's also, again, like not going with the classic, like, oh yeah, no, this is all because of the gays. It's like, mm-hmm. no, it's because of a lot of factors in the world happening. And the reason but, that it was able to proliferate for as long as it did was because the institution didn't do anything about it. Very much like the church in this one, like the institution is keeping very quiet about this. And so it's able to kind of foment behind the scenes and get stronger till it's able to do what it does. Yeah. I think there's also, you can see a queer reading in when Susan infects Lisa, mm. it's played out and shot very much like a seduction scene. Like she is like crawling on all fours over Lisa when Lisa is in her bed and she like positions herself over her in like a very sexual way. And you see like when Lisa is looking up at her, there's that moment of curiosity before she rejects her. She's this moment of like, where is this going? And then she's like, nah, this isn't for me. And, and before she can overtly reject Susan, like Susan spits devil juice in her mouth. And then, um, I mean, Lisa's now they're, they're a, they're a group of horny scientists because like at the beginning, it's like, it, it alternates between them being like, Hey, uh, what's going on? Like all this, like mystery and intrigue, but then it's also mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah. Who else is going on this trip? Who's married? Who's single? Who's all this thing. So it's like, right. yeah, they are, they are definitely a, a group Which, of, of horny scientists. <laughs> I remember grad school. I had to take a class. It was our group. Um, group counseling class. And like, I was one of the older persons in grad school. It was myself and another woman I befriended, Sarah. And we were like the married couple. We were the married persons in that group. And we were watching the class one day during break. And it looks like a live action Tinder marketplace. Like (laughs) you could tell who was trying to hook up with who. And Sarah and I were just observing it. And she was like, oh, what the fuck? Like what's going on? I'm like, you know, they're they're in their twenties. It's a group of good looking, smart people that like all we do is work for grad school. Like you have a very small pool of people that you can actually hook up with because you're working your ass off. These are like a PhD in applied physics. Like you probably don't have a lot of free time at that point. So it's like you have a very small pool of people that you're going to be able to get with. So yeah, you're going to be looking around and seeing like who is down to fuck. I mean, I can't blame anyone in that, in that instance. Can you? No, I mean, it, it totally makes sense that you got all this, uh, yeah, all the pent up tension. Like you said, like you're also going to be attracted to other, like, you know, similarly mm-hmm. intelligent people as well. 
Um, it, yeah, and it, yeah, so it's it's interesting with Walter because one, I guess we could say, uh, you know, even just uh, I wouldn't say even just gay, queer coded because he does make passes at the he makes passes at the girls and he doesn't deny the dudes either. So, um, you know, and, and I won't say great representation the fact that he is just like annoying, but at least mm-hmm. it's not he doesn't suck because he's gay. It, it sucks because he's just annoying and he, right. he's just like a very well, very odd character too. He seems to be the least interested in science amongst any yeah. of them he just talks he about just money wants to be a millionaire yeah. <laughs> millionaire by the time i'm 40 that's why right yeah. yeah and he looks like he's pushing 40 it's like dude you don't have uh you know you don't have a lot of time here and it's well people are so dismissive of him as well right like when there's that moment where like you know brian is like oh yeah who who is he who are you taking out who's the guy just like not even looking at him and then later on Walter gets pissed off when he like asks like, "Hey, do you think we're serious?" The phrase he uses is like, "Do you think we're just stroking ourselves here <laughs> again?" Fighting him in for a little circle jerk, and the dude just walks away. And he's like, "Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts." He's so pissed because everybody just dismisses Walter, who is probably like the character is probably ten times smarter than I am. Right, like the guy is not a dummy. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, he's still he's, he's still a, in the PhD program, so I mean he's a physics so grad student. Awkward. Yeah, still he's just so awkward. Yeah, but great, great, uh, great fashion sense though, and that's also a that pink shirt the, uh, and the chain. I mean, just in general, he has he has lots of great shirts. But uh, another queer tell is uh, I call it the bisexual tuck. Uh, we love to tuck our shirts in. Uh, pretty much always, mm-hmm. and he uh, never has an untucked shirt in this entire movie. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There's your uh, queer canon for Pride right. Month here. Versus Dirk Blocker's character. Happy Pride, who, everyone. <laughs> versus Dirk Blocker's character, who looks like he's like five minutes away from going to uh, a tailgate party at any given moment. Let's talk about um, the other romance in this movie. Let's talk about Brian, played by Jameson Parker and. AKA uh, Discount Diet. Tom Atkins. Well, you know, I was going to say that, but really like Brian is Tom Atkins. If instead of like consisting on a diet of Camel lights and Budweiser, he consisted on a diet of like protein shakes and creatine. It's like, he, dude is ripped. He's like Tom Atkins mixed with carry always is like yeah. kind of the vibe that uh, he gives mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Dude could bench press a Buick. You know what I mean? Like, he's a pretty ripped dude. Um, him and it's like Lisa Blount as Catherine. Right. Like, I don't think Brian is meant to be played this way, but looking at it in a 2023 lens, like, there are some stalkerish vibes here. Like, he's hanging out outside of her class. He's seeing who she's going home with. Um, what do you think of the red polo shirt sport coat combination by the way what are your all feelings on that i love a good sport coat don't know if i like it with the polo shirt i'd rather do a uh, a sport jacket with a t-shirt honestly yeah yeah one That's, or i'm a big fan. yeah one or the other i mean they're both they're both fine but you gotta do uh one or the other he does yeah he moves very fast with Catherine, like you know very uh kind of pushy into like i mean just mm-hmm. i mean like they have nothing you know uh to go off of and he's already like hey like let's let's do this let's do it and it's right. like hey pickup uh, artist vibes yeah like i kind of want to figure out what this situation is uh for the next couple of days uh not you know worry about going on dates with you but um i do love oh. the 
I do love the the smash cut of being, him being like, yeah, I want to know if we can get coffee again, and then just smash cuts them already in bed. Like, very much like the fog. <laughs> very much like the fog, Very yeah. much like, you know, again, Carpenter going back to the old, you know, are you weird? Yes, I am. Next, Or when he's like, I'm unlucky, and then Jamie Lee being like, well, we'll see. And the next time you see them, they're naked in bed. The only, so, the only thing he gets out of the way first is that he actually establishes that they know each other before he puts them in bed yes. together. Yeah, that's about it. So it's it's weird because Catherine's definitely seems receptive to Brian. Like she's not rejecting him. So I think that's what saves it is that she even he's like when he asked her to dinner, she's like, yeah, I could use some help with my homework and other things mm-hmm. over dinner, over which, dinner. you know, yeah, other things we know what that means. Like that means like I need to be fucked. I mean, that's pretty much that's what the other things is. It's clearly coded. But it's it's super bizarre because you have that bizarre exchange where he's where she's like that's a he makes that remark like no one who looks like you ever ends up in our department and she's like that's wrong and that's sexist and he's like confirmed sexist and proud of it like how did you think that and then he gets mad at her and gets her to apologize starts negging her yeah it's mm. yeah does the classic can we start a conversation over it's like bro like i don't like where this is going yeah and it's so funny because then they spend like they spend all this time like kind of setting them up at the beginning and then once they like get to the uh church like they're all off doing like their own things and stuff and Mm -hmm. it's like not until the end again where he's like oh no she's sacrificing herself and like and it like comes back around remove Brian's character from the movie completely and nothing would be any different. Mm-mm. Right. Yeah. Like Catherine is the only one who comes close to having something like an arc and that she's supposed to be portrayed as like aloof. Right. And distant from people at the beginning. You know, she, he, uh, Brian has that line. Like you talk numbers and you're all romantic. You talk people, you clam up. It's like, dude, like this is your first conversation <laughs> with her. Like, you're making some big assumptions. Like, we're really making some assumptions. We are. And then he goes, like, straight to the wanting to tell her he loves her. And she's like, don't. Let's not put it at that level. And then he's like, well, who hurt you? Yeah, who's the and guy? Like, who is it? And it's like, bro, we, chill. Do we think this is the first time Brian's ever had sex? Like, <laughs> it could be. Is is, is this his first be. time? Because... That he's, kinda, he's throwing off a lot of those vibes. A little bit, like like he's a uh, he's a uh, latched already, uh, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's a uh, he's kind of weird because and and you think he is gonna be like kind of the the I guess you know the the hero guy and he's like he's the only one that uh, listens to the professor and like sees what's going on. But like yeah, he's pretty much a non-factor uh, for for most of the movie. <laughs> right. What he is is like stable. He's kind of like within that group, he's the one that has the most level head. Mm-hmm. But you could honestly remove that character and not much would be different. You could put that burden of responsibility on any other character in the movie, remove, and mm-hmm. maybe the love story is there as a misdirect to set us up like this is just going to be a regular, regular movie mm-hmm. before we get into like the atmospheric, like thrumming low vi- like low energy atmospheric horror of the thing um maybe that's maybe that's just a way to kind of throw us off until we get into what this movie actually is and so yeah. you have this and you know he's got he's got the square shoulders he's got the you know the the mustache like he's he's if there's a hero in this movie it's this guy but he's a he's a non-entity as we go yeah so 
he doesn't save the day at the end. He needs no. saving yeah. at the end. Sure. Um, sure. Let's talk atmospheric horror as we wrap up here. Let's because I think that's where where this movie is at its most interesting is that vibe that it sets up. We talked about the opening credits, and I think Carpenter throws a lot of great atmospheric things at us here from the subtleties of like the wall, the windows being covered by worms to the homeless persons that slowly descend on the building Mm -hmm. and surround it, trapping all of the scientists inside to like really creepy things like the, the homeless woman that confronts Donald Pleasance before he enters the church he does something like Carpenter does something to modulate her voice so that it has like a much deeper, almost metallic baritone to it. It's like such a wonderful thing you're doing here reopening. And it's something just so sinister. And then you get that reveal, like her cup is filled with maggots. Like what are some of y'all's favorite at more atmospheric horror that you see here. And Steve, I see your eyes lighting up. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you, I don't know. I'm going to let go I'm, ham. No, I'm going to pass ham on this. I'm going to pass to Devon first. Cause I, I have a feeling if I get going, I'm not going to stop. Yeah. You'll, you'll probably have a little more than me because I did like, uh, I do like uh, the kind of build in the first act for sure. Um, I, I, I want to see definitely more of uh, like, uh, you know, the, the inverted stuff. Like I love like the detail, like not only are the, are the worms like on the window, but then you see them like moving up the window. And mm-hmm. like, so like when you see any of those shots, any of the dripping water, you know, dripping upwards or like uh, when we do like eventually like later see like a geyser, like, you know, going upwards at the ceiling and Walter's just like kind of watching it. It's like uh, definitely uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for that because it, again it's like it's a very simple effect they're just shooting stuff upside down reversing footage like you know they're not doing anything crazy here uh and it you know it gives off that perfect uncanniness for for the vibes that they're going for in this um so so anything like that uh tends to be pretty much like some of my uh favorite stuff as far as uh the the atmosphere and vibey stuff goes yeah uh echo that a hundred percent the the scene where uh, she's laying in bed and it's like the geysers coming out of her mouth and uh, and eyes just like flying up into the ceiling where it's all pooling. I love that mm-hmm. shot so much. Um, the way her body as she's lying there and as he's trapped in the closet watching her, the way her bo- her skin just starts to flake away more mm-hmm. and more until it's there's just like nothing there but just viscera and muscle and like blood just kind of all over like covering her body i think is just insanely horrific in a way that is really unsettling um i love there's a shot at the beginning uh with the 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 unhoused woman kind of motioning up to the sun and bowing back that when uh when Birak is entering the building and then you cut to a like a like a smash cut to a close up and she's got ants crawling on her face mm-hmm. Um, Wyndham like completely falling apart when the bugs start leaving him because he's been comprised of bugs while he's standing there talking to them is such a fucking cool moment. Um, I love that. The the shot of any time they put their fingers through a mirror, I love. Like any time they just like start to touch a mirrored surface and it just becomes a liquid, I love that. And then that that shot after Pleasance breaks the mirror, 
with Catherine inside of it. And she's floating away, reaching out toward it. That look on her face. Yes, we've stopped this thing, but at what cost? Well, that's one of Carpenter's, I think one of the best shots in the film. A hundred percent. That look of like, she's not dead. She, she is trapped. Mm-hmm. And there's that look of panic and regret as she's reaching back. And that look is frozen and etched on her face. Like that is one of the best shots in any of Carpenter's movies. It really beautifully done and is absolutely terrifying to think about. It reminded me over the last summer, I read Stephen King's Revival which I think is one of his best, probably the best book of this century Mm. that he's done. And it's this idea, the whole idea is like what happens after we die. And when you find out what happens after you die, it is horrifying. It's, it's given me nightmares to think about. Oh, wow. Um, That kind of look is the look that reminds me so much of, of King and revival. And I just think the other thing that jumps out, like immediately after, uh, Wyndham disintegrates and his death is horror. His, both his deaths are horrifying. You get that shot of the old woman with the scissors, which I think when I think of us and I think of, of Jordan Peele mm-hmm. and those scissors in just everybody kind of standing in line waiting. Ah. I think Peele might've borrowed that concept here. That he does shot, love Carpenter, so that makes sense. Yeah. Oh yeah, who doesn't? That shot, like he, that smoothness as she's rushing towards him, they couldn't get it quite right. So how they do that is she's actually standing still, and the background is being driven very slowly past by a truck. So they're moving the set and keeping her still. That's cool. And I think um, oh, so Grasmere actually had because he was one of the visual effects artists on the movie. And then Carpenter was like, hey, do you ever act? He's like, yeah, in high school. He's like, well, we have a role for you. So he talks about like how he, they had to go to SAG and say, like, is it okay if we let this effects artist appear in the movie? So that's how much they wanted him. He talks about how they like, she's a weak old lady and she's supposed to make it look painful and so i had to like he's like i grabbed her by the wrist and kept driving the thing into me he's like i didn't want to hurt her but like it just didn't look good oh Um, that's funny wow his second death when he disintegrated and again the voice that yeah it does the the modulation again when he's bugs Yeah. yeah but after that you have calder played by Jesse Lawrence Ferguson. And so he and, and Peter Jason, who appears as Leahy, they would go on to become like Carpenter staples mm-hmm. in the second half. Like uh, Peter Jason in particular, he actually does the commentary with Carpenter on this. And it's a very fun commentary with the two of them. And he, Leahy, uh, Jace, Peter Jason was like, you wouldn't put any of my ideas? And he's like, well, I let you do the fucking trumpet, the human trumpet <laughs> sound, which is awesome. But Calder being the real man of of faith in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like you see him at one point in the background, like when they finds out what's going on, like actually crosses himself, but it's subtly done more so than the priest. even. Yeah. Oh yeah. He knows what's happening to him after he's attacked. And like that scene of him 
stumbling up the stairs, dragging the chair, singing Amazing Grace oh because God. he can't fight off this infection. Yeah. And then he tries to end it by cutting his throat. And then everything later with him in the mirror, just that sad giggle is so good. Very unsettling. And so unnerving. He's... All of that is so much scarier than the zombies attack mm-hmm. that is becomes the last act of this movie see I, I liked that like yeah the stuff that they were doing with calder was like again i mentioned earlier that it was like the possession stuff like how feels a little evil daddy like you know passing the fluids and then kind of possessed but then like they would just like kind of stand around you know and, and not that i need the theatricality of evil dip but like what calder was doing was like a nice like like in between like it was like mm-hmm. yeah it was unsettling of like uh, he, you felt like, you know, him like trying to like mentally, uh, you know, combat it, but like his like will is just like been overtaken, you know, and like, uh, yeah. and yeah, that that whole scene is uh, super crazy. And and why yeah. and why I had that reaction at the beginning of the episode when you're talking about uh, your favorite shot, I thought you were talking about the like because you said one of the best final shots. So I thought you were talking about Brian. Uh, at the very end of the movie, and I was like, "That's your." Oh, I was like, is. "I was like, oh, you're, oh, you, oh, it is." I, you're still I, talking about I, that I, one because I, because I, because I, I do love uh, the the shot of Catherine, like yeah, floating away in the void. Yes. Uh, it gives me oh. uh, into the skin vibes. Uh, I wonder if uh, they kind of took a, a yeah. little inspo from that because, like, if, yeah, her face is yeah. just Good like call. so like cold. Catherine, Catherine reaching back. And again, she's the only character that's really had an arc Mm -hmm. in that she's gone from being kind of like cold and aloof to, no, humanity is worth saving and I'll sacrifice myself. But that her reaching back in horror is one of Carpenter's best shots. Um, Well, let's talk about the end by talking about the one thing we haven't mentioned yet, which I think is what this film is best known for is those Tassion transmissions that are sent back through time and space. And how Carpenter achieved that effect is he shot these scenes on camcorder, just like a VHS camcorder, put the tape back in a VCR, played it on a standard CRT tube television, and then filmed the tube television with his with Gary Kibbe to give it that digital otherworldly kind of out of focus look and it between it's carpenter's voice he's doing the voiceovers there Mm -hmm. as well um these nightmarish images i think work so well because you don't quite know what's going on even once they explain it you're still kind of like well what is what are they trying to say and the fact that you get like a few seconds more each time as well truly disturbing nightmarish stuff i love everything from like the handheld nature of it a little bit how out of focus it is to that figure in the doorway seeing a little bit more of it each time is just it's perfect perfect horror for me yeah i i really do like those um there was like a a movie that came out not too long ago that like uh does a similar thing it's like a uh exploring like dream like sleep paralysis and like that whole thing but like yeah like the way that they like filmed it like kind of gives that that like two layers of digitalness between it because like it makes sense like you know the the time difference and like this like alternate dimension uh type deal um i i thought it was like really cool like kind of getting a little bit more of it each time and uh carpenter's voiceover super creepy in it as well yeah. 
Um, and then it's so good. And then so and I guess so at the end. So was it? So was it Catherine sending the Tachyon messages this whole time? Because but no, she's just the figure because now she's like in that yeah. like into she is the now. son of the anti god. Yeah, yeah. So I don't she think is the she prince is of darkness the, now. I don't think that she is initially because I think they've changed history with her going through the mirror. Hmm. Mm. That's right. Because Pleasance is like, I stopped it. I stopped it. And then the, the, the horror at the end is that we realize you haven't stopped it. You've just changed it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's yeah, still yeah. going to occur. Um, I lo- so the other thing I want to mention is Gary Kibbe is the cinematographer of this movie. And it's his first collaboration with Carpenter, like uh, Dean Cundey, had wrapped with Carpenter on Big Trouble and they wouldn't work together again. And we were kind of wondering, like, was there a fallout between them? And I don't think it's so much that, so much as, like, Cundy at this point had probably priced himself out because the reason Carpenter was able to get him for movies like The Thing and Big Trouble and Little China is that the money was there to be able to afford him. Like, the budget allowed him to pay Cundy. But by this time, Cundy had shot Romancing the Stone and uh, Back to the Future. He would go on to shoot all three Back to the Future movies. At this point, like you're working on a $3 million budget, you probably can't afford Dean Cundy anymore. Like we said before, don't worry about Dean Cundy. He'll be fine. He's, he's doing okay. But I think he'd priced himself out of like if Carpenter's only going to have a few million bucks to work with. You, you probably have to work with someone different. And I think Kibby does a hell of a job. Like he's still shooting the uh, Panamorph lenses and it looks for like a very self-contained, almost like siege movie. It still looks fantastic. When Kibbe, it still looks like a Carpenter movie. Yeah. Uh, Kibby worked with Cundy on big trouble. So it's yep. like, well, I can't, I can't afford the big guy. So I'll just, Passing the baton. Right. I'll, I'll get I'll get the next bit. It's it's like the effects on the thing. Like, like Rick Baker, like Rick Baker going from Rick Baker to Rob Bottin. Exactly. The fog and then the thing. You're right. Yeah, it, it, um, that's exactly what it what it feels yeah. like in that regard. And I think this is also where Carpenter met Sandy King, who was one of, the, I believe, one of the script supervisors. Uh, and Sandy King would go on to become Mrs. John Carpenter in 1990. And they're still together but she has mm. uh either produced or worked on all of his movies in some capacity uh since this movie so right. again carpenter kind of creating like a family through film oh yeah how sweet which i really like so I, and again i i think we talked about this um within the last couple of episodes but just i like the idea of a director who knows the people he likes to work with and is able to yeah. foster kind of a a home base of talent yeah. with with a lot of different people and Carpenter seems that that seems really important to Carpenter. Yeah. I I agree because like after a a year from now, after they live comes out, like there's a lot wider gaps in Carpenter's filmography. And I think a lot of that is like, it's probably not as enjoyable for him. I mean, he does go back, like he shoots, memoirs of an invisible man which by all uh, account was no fun for anybody which he was like said he made it want him to quit the film industry he was working with chevy chase will do that to you yeah Yeah, will absolutely do that to you so like i think carpenter is a guy who's very proud of his work and what he's done but if it's not fun he's not going to do it if it's if he's not enjoying it he's going to find his pleasure elsewhere 
So why do I love the last shot of this movie? Why do I love that ending? Number one, it's a great nightmarish sequence like that dream within a dream where you have the full revelation of what's happened. And then Brian wakes up in bed with Catherine looking much uh, like Kelly did before that all like kind of flaked out her skin rotting away. This is an ending to me very much like Carpenter's in Halloween three, which he scripted. It's a very much an ending like the thing. It's even very much an ending like Halloween Mm -hmm. where Myers was stopped for a moment, but then he disappears and you have that final shot or you have the final sequence of like his breathing laid over like all the areas that we've been and this suggestion that evil can lurk around any of these corners. You'll never truly escape it with the thing. We know that one of them, whether it is uh, Frank or whether it's, uh, David or whether it's Kurt Russell one of them is infected you have that and it hasn't truly been defeated Halloween 3 we don't know if Tom Atkins stopped the last station from broadcasting and you get that here with Brian walking up to the mirror and reaching out to it and it cuts away before he touches it you don't know have they truly stopped it And if they have for how long, I love that ambiguous, really nihilistic ending. Yeah, it, it, I love, I love a good ambiguous ending. I love, those are my favorite kinds of endings in in a lot of ways. And this felt very inception to me, particularly because Mm -hmm. it cuts right before the answer would probably be revealed one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like inception, whether or not, his fingers hit the mirror or pass through it is not the point. The point is it's inevitable. It's still coming. Mm-hmm. We haven't stopped anything. We've just changed it. Like that's the real horror. It doesn't matter if his fingers pass through that mirror or not. It's still yeah. coming. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I personally would have liked it to just have, cause I feel like that whole thing comes through with, uh, with the, uh, the last transmission and it being uh, Catherine, like, is the shadow figure. I feel like that, if they would have just, like, ended on that, like, that's and haunting enough and, like, still, like, kind of gives that same thing. Um, so that's the only reason I'm not, like, in love with, like, the, the very last sequence. Um, it feels like it, like, is trying to, like, really double down on, like, hey, is yeah. it or isn't it? But it's, like, I kind of got that already, like, from the transmission already of, like, uh-huh. being, like, oh, yeah, no, they totally didn't you know win and like sure. it's, they just changed it like you said so so i i thought that would be a smidge more haunting because that last like one is so damn creepy that transmission yep. but um but yeah so yeah that i could also see that like him snapping awake after that and then cutting to credits like that would work mm-hmm. as well i just think that the end of this movie is very effective i th- do Agreed. think it's one and i think one thing that carpenter nails that a lot of others like struggle with as he knows how to end a movie yeah he does all right any final thoughts uh this movie is great and if you haven't seen it check it out because it it fucking slaps it's uh definitely worth checking out uh for the ideas and potential and honestly um because i know that they're like apparently developing a christine remake uh stop doing that and remake this movie because i think yes. i think this could 
like as much as you know even though like you know carpenter does still do his directing thing on this movie um for me personally i would like to like really explore like these ideas that he's not all that concerned with exploring um but in a similar way so for me uh yeah let's uh remake prince of darkness who would you want to see direct a Prince of Darkness remake, Devon? Oh, someone I'd want to see. Adam McKay. Definitely not. No. Um, I mean, I threw it out. Um, Alex Garland. Uh, I, I mentioned Annihilation and uh, and Ex Machina. Like he has a very uh, a similar uh, you know existential cynicism to his work, and uh, I think Alex Garland could uh, do something and uh, for him to go a little bit more because uh, he's kind of you know with each uh, one he does like you know sci-fi and horror, but like with each one he's kind of given a little bit more horror into it. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm I think still trying uh, to Alex wrap Garland. my head around men. So there's a be... lot to unpack in men. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but I, and, and I think maybe that's why I don't like men as much because it goes away from the sci-fi. So I think he uh, does mm. need to kind of be right in that existential sci-fi horror like sweet spot. And I think he could pull this off. Okay. Right oh, I've really enjoyed John Carpenter June. I think this is going to be something we have to revisit. Gonna say, Let's do it every June. Mike. Year. Yeah, we might have to do that again next year and pick three carpenter classics again because it's been a blast kind of exploring his movies and just why he means so much the genre why we still celebrate his work 30 40 years later and yeah i really really love talking these three films in particular although i'm kind of itching to talk in the mouth of madness i'm really really itching to talk that i would definitely be down on that and i know um you know we might not be done with uh might not be the last carpenter film for the year possibly and by that point nope. i will have seen they live i promise i i still haven't watched it yet but by by that point it's I'll have so watched good it. devon i would well, say let's... carpenter has a miracle run between assault on precinct 13 and they live in the mouth of madness falls outside of it only because it, it because comes after memoirs of was... invisible man which fucking you know sucks, was, but yeah what i was thinking because i started the rewatch in the mouth of madness and this movie predates his uh, collaborations with Sam Neill, mm-hmm. but I would have loved to have seen Sam Neill in the Brian role. Yeah. I think that would have oh. given, because I think maybe what this mm. movie does lack is like a central character to really latch on to. Mm-hmm. And I think like Sam Neill has such a great and underappreciated genre run that he, I think he could have done, he and he could have brought, the gravitas that's needed to a rubbing. You see that in Jurassic Park just a few years later. He really could have brought something to the role. I would have loved that's to a have great seen call. A Sam Neill. That's a great call. Yeah. So I'm trying to see where this falls in relation to Omen three. <laughs> uh it's like it's like six years after Omen three. Yeah, yeah. he would have fucking killed right it. There. Yeah. So all right, let's plug some stuff. Chewy. Yeah. What's going on with Disenfranchised? Uh, Disenfranchised, we are finishing up our uh, 80s animation extravaganza, a.k.a. the movies that marketed to us. Um, We've talked about Transformers, the movie. We've talked about My Little Pony, the movie. We've talked about G.I. Joe, the movie. And uh, this week we're talking about The Chipmunk Adventure. We've got our friends uh, Hope Lichner and Bex Stow from uh, High on on Cartoons uh, coming with us to talk about that one. So we are pumped to finish that up and then july we've got uh, some other great blockbuster tie-ins coming so 
It's a it's a fun month. You can find uh, mm-hmm. Disenfranchised on all the social media at DisenfranchPod. Our um, for a few more days anyway. Our uh, Patreon is free to sign up for, so you can get a seven day free trial on our Patreon at patreon.com slash disenfranchpod. And you can find me, Stephen Foxworthy, at Chewy Walrus, which is why Mike's been calling me Chewy all episode, uh, on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Excellent. Devon, what's going on with the Spectre Cinema Club? You can uh, find us. Uh, we drop episodes every Tuesday. Me and my buddy, Gary McDowell, uh, exploring different subgenres. Uh, June, we just uh, wrapped up our Pride Month celebration, uh, doing a celebration of camp movies all month. Uh, which was a fantastic time. And then coming up, we have um, uh, horror movies based around the internet. Um, you know, kind of a newer subgenre that's a brewing right now. And then um, after that, um, I think we'll be coming right after we finish Jaws over here. We'll be doing a month of aquatic horror, uh, doing the Meg and some other non-shark related uh, aquatic horrors in Excellent. August. So, nice. uh, yeah, so uh, we got a nice little summer run uh, coming up. So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Spectre Cinema. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd at underscore Daddy Disco. Oh fuck! Y'all on TikTok now? Just for clips, you know. Do do oh, some uh, little yeah. caption clips for the pod. Hell yeah! I'll f- yeah. Follow you guys right away. Absolutely. Oh, thanks. So, listeners, you can follow our show at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. You can follow our website www.podandthependulum.com, or we have all of our back issue our our back shows posted. It's a really nice, easy way to kind of navigate the site uh go ahead and if you haven't already make sure that you are subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts from uh if you are subscribing to us on apple please make sure to subscribe rate and leave a review we're over 110 reviews now i've gotten some nice ones lately but if you're a newer listener it's a very quick and easy and free way to support the show is give us five stars and a couple sentences of why you like us it helps new listeners find us all the time um you can follow me at Mike underscore Snoonian on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me at Letterboxd at Mike Chump Change, all one word. If you want more of us, go ahead and become a patron. Like we've relaunched the patron page after a very long time away. Go to patreon.com pod and the pendulum. And we have a bonus episode going up every month. This month we did uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, one of the greatest heist movies of all time. Hell yeah. We have other bonus content up there. Uh, As this goes live, uh, Ari and I had recorded a really fun bonus show on like what we call like basically the rental shelf, like what we are watching or reading or listening to at playing games at the moment. We talk about let's occupying our time. We did half of it on that and then another 20 minutes or so on professional wrestling, uh, which is a really fun conversation with Ari and herself. So it's a very easy way to support the show and really make sure that we can keep the lights on. Uh, go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum today. Tiers start is two bucks to get you bonus material. So we are putting John Carpenter behind us and we are dipping our toes in the cold and dangerous waters of the ocean. Uh, For the month of July, we are going to be looking at Jaws, the birth of the summer blockbuster movie, one of the greatest movies of all time. 
that that's right jaws the revenge part four mm-hmm. um but yeah we have like what i would call the very definition of a one film franchise here uh, although i think that jaws 2 and jaws 3 have some fun things to talk about uh but we will be back very soon with our episode a deep deep dive into steven spielberg's jaws and i'm very much looking forward to chatting about that one with our guests after that we are going to be kicking off the season of saw we have saugust september and sawtober we have all 10 saw films to go through which one-way ticket to saw city baby it's gonna be a journey folks it's gonna be a journey (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us for this episode. Thank you to all the new listeners. Uh, If there's one thing I've learned this month is y'all love John Carpenter. Uh, We've hit, uh, it seems like our, our, our listenership has gone way up these past few months, which we greatly appreciate. I attribute it to the tremendous panel of co-hosts that we have joining us every week so we truly appreciate you if you've been on with us from day one if you're a newer listener hope we give you guys all reason to stick around we'll be back very very soon with our first of four jaws films take care y'all keep it spooky